Okay, wonderful. Hello, everybody. It's so good to have you all here. Uh, this is our continuation of uh, the series for virtual symposia. And today we have the honor of having a wonderful um, set of panelists that have written an important document um, 10 years ago. Uh, and this is an, an opportunity for us to celebrate and also to continue our journey uh, in making uh, an even bigger impact uh, in this very important theory, the behavioral theory of the firm. Uh, Luke is uh, the moderator co-host with me today. Uh, Luke, I will turn the speaking right to you and let you introduce the session. Go right ahead, Luke. Okay, thank you. So let me get started. So let me share a screen first. Can you see my screen? Yes. Okay, so uh, thank you for coming to the Strongest Together Symposium series. Uh, my name is Luke Ree, an assistant professor of strategy at the University of California, Irvine. Uh, it's my honor to moderate this session together with Gwen Lee, professor of management at the University of Florida. So as you all know, the topic of uh, today's session is the behavior theory of the firm, not the version of the 1963, but the version of 2012. Uh, the junior faculties, uh, including myself, and as well as PhD students who are serious about the, this theory must have been admired by the plausibility or extensibility and integrative nature of the original theory. At the same time, we may have been curious to know the relevance of the original theory to modern contemporary organizations and the value proposition of the, the theory for us as a scholar who has a mission to dig into organizations in the context of 21st century. So fortunately, so we have exemplary guideline piece published in 2012 at the Academy of Management Annals, co-authored by four neo Carnegie scholars who are academic descendants of the original first generation Carnegie School scholars. And so Giovanni, Henry, Dan, and Willie. So as we all know, each of them made a huge contribution to the field of the organizations and strategy individually but in this piece, well, they, as a group of neo-Carnegie scholars, collectively paid attention to the question that we may have been curious to address. So specifically, well, here are the three paragraphs of their paper. So this is introduction. In the, in the second paragraph, they started with the acknowledgement that the theory has been influential and has inspired an academic community of behaviorally oriented students of organizations and strategy. And then they ask the question that in the third paragraph, so can this influence continue? And how can the premises, foundational concepts, and overarching aspirations of the original Carnegie scholars guide the future inquiries into organization administration? So how can they be used and develop the form, the basis of modern behavior theory of management? So, so one of the goals uh, of the session today is to revisit those questions and hear the co-author's perspective, both individually and as a group, about those questions, and as well as the, their motivation to write this paper and the observation about our field since the publication of this paper 10 years ago. So here's the agenda for today. So we start with each panel presentation for up to 12 minutes, uh, which is followed by uh, questions that Gwen and I will ask all the panelists, and then the, we will open the floor to questions. And between present, panel presentations, then we take one question 
for the purpose of clarification. And, but we hold rest of questions until all the panel presentation is done. So, so without talking too much, and I was following the order of the authors in the paper, uh, please uh, let me first introduce and welcome our first presenter, uh, Giovanni. Hi. So let me stop sharing my screen. Yeah, let me see if I can share my... Hey, and I put in the chat room an invitation for you to submit questions for the panelists. I will collect them and have them addressed uh, towards uh, the end when we have uh, the Q&A. Do you guys see my, my presentation? My yes. Perfect. All right, so good morning, everyone. Uh, you know, thanks for your interest in the session and especially thanks to you, Gwen and Luke, for uh, organizing it. Um, so you asked three questions and I tried to be as diligent as I could uh, in, in, in answering them. Uh, with respect to the motivation for, for the paper, well, I don't, it's been quite a while and, you know, I'm not sure I remember precisely, you know, what led me to this particular uh, uh, paper, but I remember vividly um, what led to the, you know, precursor of this paper, which was the Neo Carnegie uh, article uh, that I caught with Dan and, uh, and Willie. Um, and in fact, I did some digging and I found an early exchange that I had with Willie a long time ago, maybe you remember that Willie, <laughs> in which I basically sent you this email and I said, you know, look, this is what I'm really interested in, you know. Uh, uh, my question is, and my interest is really in essentially rewriting <laughs> administrative behavior and or the behavioral theory of the firm uh, based on, uh, you know, what happened in social science and strategy and organization theory and more broadly in the behavioral sciences in the past 50 years. So that was really my, you know, very small, tiny ambition, uh, you know, going into this project. And um, of course, you know, these two papers don't really do that, which uh, might be an opportunity for us panelists, you know, to do something together again. But, but that was really what I was uh, interested in. Uh, you know, the idea is, you know, we all believe in those premises in those assumptions and, you know, this way of thinking about the world. But, you know, a lot has been going on since, you know, the early writings and, and today, you know, what kind of book would we write today? Um, now, your second question about, you know, things that I would have written differently was a little, a little trickier. You know, I, I, I kind of reread the paper. In fact, I think I read the paper for the first time after it was published. And, you know, most of the things that I, uh, that we say in the paper, you know, I would say again, maybe except for, uh, for one thing, except for, you know, the way we kind of positioned the behavioral theory of the firm vis-a-vis uh, -vis the strategy, the strategy agenda. And, you know, and it's not that anything big has happened in the field since then that, you know, made me kind of change my mind or, you know, uh, uh, kind of uh, more acutely aware of some qualifications that I think are important. What happened is that, you know, I, I got to see the behavioral theory of the firm in a slightly different way, you know, and, and I have to say also thanks to a, a conversation that I had with Jim, uh, uh, you know, a while back. In particular, I think that I became to appreciate more and more, uh, you know, a fundamental chasm within the Carnegie School. You know, we think about the Carnegie School as a, as a big, uh, unified, happy church. Well, you know, it is, but at the same time, 
you know, there are important divisions that I don't think the article uh, uh, pays sufficient attention to that, you know, are relevant to, to, to strategy, actually. Um, and what I refer to is, uh, um, you know, the division between what I would call, you know, the science of the real soul, right? You know, the, the, and this is March. This is the behavioral theory of the firm. This is a commitment to, to description, a commitment to explaining existing things, existing artifacts or entities, you know, a commitment in central tendencies, right? You know, and again, you know, the behavioral theory of the firm is in a sense the port poster child of this, of this quote unquote soul, of this attitude. You know, you open the behavioral theory of the firm, you know, the first thing you read is this, you know, this is a book about the business firm. It's a book about the modern representative firm and the way it makes the economic decisions, you know, and we propose to make the detailed observations of the procedures by which firms make decisions and to use these observations as a basis for theory of decision-making within business organizations. So that's, that's kind of, you know, uh, uh, you know, but the way probably we, most of us think about the Carnegie School, you know, we think Carnegie School, maybe this is the image that, that we have, but this is one kind of branch of the school, right? You know, Simon actually thinks about the world quite differently. Uh, when he was asked to reflect on how he came up with uh, administrative behavior, here is what Simon wrote, right? He said, you know, the scantiness of my experiences with organizations pose no particular limit to my development of an alternative approach to decision-making, right? Applying the idea to bound the, bound the rationality to knowledge of organizations uh, could easily be achieved. We don't need bookish knowledge of organizations, right? Um, inference rather than empirical observation could and did guide this analysis. Now, think about that, right? You have certain March on the one hand, Simon on the other hand, you know, they're kind of introducing us to their work, you know, and, and here is the way they talk about it. You know, these two statements couldn't be uh, more different. Um, and the question is why, right? And, and this is where Jim kind of helped me understand things. Uh, uh, and the reason I think is that, you know, Simon wasn't really interested in the real per se. Uh, Simon was interested in the possible. Uh, Simon was interested in, as he said, how things ought to be with devising artifacts to achieving goals. You know, he had an engineering, an artificial kind of intelligence, you know. His commitment to the behavior, uh, to the behaviorally plausible, uh, which by the way, in Simon, doesn't only include central tendencies, but also outliers, and this is important, uh, was there, but insofar as it informed possible better artifacts, right? So it's a very different sensibility, and they call it, you know, the science of the possible here. And this is a gene that Simon always had, you know, I found uh, the, the, the introduction to his dissertation and, you know, page two, where he summarizes his entire dissertation, that that became administrative behavior. He says, well, you know, uh, uh, you know, the thesis of this study is that the construction of a satisfactory administrative theory waits upon the solution to this final question. What administrative arrangements are conducive to correct choices, you know? Um, so, you know, so I think that as time went on, I became increasingly more cognizant of and appreciative of this 
this, this divide within the school. And the question is, you know, why does it matter to strategy, right? And, and I think it does matter quite a bit because in essence, you know, uh, uh, a commitment to central tendencies, right? A commitment to the representative, to, to the ordinary, to, to normal behavior, you know, may divert attention from constructs that are in fact very important to the superior or the extraordinary, which in turn is, you know, what strategy is all about. You know, we want to explain superior performance. Uh, now, this is very visible, you know, again, if we compare the behavioral theory of the firm and, and Simon, you know, there is a central passage in the behavioral theory of the firm. If you ask me, you know, what's the most relevant passage of the behavioral theory of the firm, I would say, I would say this, you know, you know, rather than looking for ways of dealing with uncertainty through certainty equivalent equivalence, the firm looks for procedures that minimize the need for predicting uncertain future events. One method uses short-term feedback as a trigger to action, another accepts standardized decision rules, right? You know, to paraphrase, you know, basically Syrton March here are telling us, you know, because they're not very good at anticipating uh, firms tend to avoid anticipation, right? And therefore anticipation and foresight is not really a central tendency. And therefore, you know, we don't really pay attention to it, right? Because the behavioral theory of the firm is about central tendencies. Um, now, again, you know, let's look, let's look at Simon. You know, Simon wouldn't disagree at all that, you know, standard operating procedures, decision rules, routines are, are ubiquitous or central tendencies. And he wouldn't disagree at all that, you know, we are very bounded uh, in rationality and anticipation and in representation, we are deeply bounded, but he doesn't care, right? Because he doesn't care as much about central tendencies. He believes anticipation and representation can in fact be engineered, right? And, 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 and therefore, you know, since they're central to choice, you know, that, that becomes a central commitment in his kind of, in his kind of agenda. And, um, and, and uh, you know, as he said, in fact, you know, that representation makes a difference is a long understood problem, a deep understanding of how representations are created and how they contribute uh, uh, um, uh, to the solution of problems will become an essential component in the future theory of design, you know, representation and anticipation as we know. Uh, where central, maybe the central, uh, uh, you know, gravitational center of Simon's uh, thinking about um, decision-making. Uh, so, you know, the bottom line, uh, you know, what is it that I would write differently about the behavioral theory of the firm? Well, about, you know, that paper. Well, if we believe that part of the strategy agenda, right, is about, you know, uh, 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 is about anticipation, is about, you know, foreseeing is about, you know, getting better at foresight. Well, um, you know, maybe the, the BTF, the behavioral theory of the firm as a, as a hub, as a driver of a behavioral approach to strategy may preclude, uh, 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 you know, what I would say is the necessary attention to them. Uh, you know, and, and I don't think that that is an aspect that, you know, the paper captured at all. In fact, the paper comes across as a little imperialistic when it comes to, you know, uh, uh, you know, relating the behavioral theory of the firm to the strategy agenda. And the other soul of the Carnegie School, on the other hand, uh, may be a better port of embarkation when, you know, the object is to think intelligently about, again, representation, anticipation, foresight. 
So that's kind of you know uh, uh, my take on 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 your second question. Uh, on your third question about, uh, and I will be very brief since I'm running out of time here, about about you know big developments in the field. Well, I thought about it uh, through the lens of my experience as journal editor at organization sciences and strategy science. I saw lots of papers. And, and, you know, and I would say that, you know, I, I didn't see, especially as far as, you know, the strategy side of things is concerned, you know, and I'm going to let Henrik Dan and Willie talk about things that are closer to their heart. Uh, I didn't see major research agendas, right, or major big ideas. You know, most of the work is quality work within existing uh, research uh, uh, programs, you know, performance feedback in particular. I mean, you know, I don't know. You, you can't believe how many papers I handled on performance feedback. Uh, I think that might be the area that is most saturated, um, you know, in, in the kind of behavioral theory of the firm uh, domain representations, attention, micro foundations, organizational learning, categorization, et cetera. And, and you know, and, and, you know, the big development, as you all know, if anything, is a big proliferation of work on behavioral strategy, but I'm afraid that, you know, it's, it's, the, it's the label that, that, you know, makes it appear as it's a new thing, but in reality, uh, I believe that the label is getting a little empty because everything right now looks like, you know, behavioral or behavioral strategy. And so, you know, I'm not sure about that. But that's pretty much my, um, you know, my, my, my reflection. Um, Excellent. Thank you so much, Giovanni. Uh, do we have a quick uh, clarification? If you have, uh, please post them in the chat. And now we can transition to our second speaker. Uh, let's go ahead and test your slides for presentation. Henry? Just be um, sharing here. Yes, perfect. Okay. So, um, behavioral theory at the theory of the firm at 10, but really at 59, I'm taking into account that we were just doing a little bit of a rehash of it. Um, this is my view. I think the benefit of a panel like this one is that you can add up four different views plus your own, and, and maybe we can come to some broader uh, view of what it should be like uh, than, uh, than just um, any of us uh, talking here. Uh, so let me get into the questions that uh, you asked one by one, and I'll, I'll let the, the slides help me be fairly disciplined about how to, uh, to do this. Um, so the first, um, question was really what, why did we want to write this, um, this paper? And I mean, it's really a question about state of mind, which I obviously don't remember so well, but I can reconstruct it, um, at least by reading the paper, which I also did one more time. I think we wanted to uh, clarify some things. We wanted to make some connections. So we wanted to connect and we want to wanted to inspire a little bit. Uh, clarifying, um, I think 
we wanted to try to create a better understanding of, of the what's and the why's of the behavioral theory of the firm, um, which had come to that wonderful position of being cited a lot, but often ritually cited, uh, which means that, you know, it was being used in ways that looked a little bit off in one way or the other. So it was really a reminder of what was being said here and what are some of the research streams that are closest to what um, and what the behaviors here were It was a clarification. Um, the connection was that um, there's a fair number of, of research streams that had elements of the behavior theory of the firm in them, in addition to what we would most easily recognize as the behavior theory of the firm. So we, uh, I think we made some effort uh, pointing out connections uh, like that when we reviewed uh, the, uh, the literature, not staying rigidly within a certain number of of scholars who are most easily identifiable as, as behavioral theater from people, but people uh, also reaching out to those doing sympathetic work. And I think we, we did a fair amount of, of that too. The, the final one was really just to inspire because we looked at what's been done and how could more of it be done? How can it be directed better? Uh, what would be a nice list of, of things that look like they should be added to the work that's already been done. And so we, we had a number of suggestions there as well. And um, yeah, those three, um, clarify, connect and inspire were really the, the, the main goals as far as I, I saw them, as far as I can recall. Now, um, you also asked a slightly more complicated question on uh, how could the article had been written differently? Um, I have a simple answer to that. Um, well, it was pretty much perfect as written then, so really no changes. I kind of like it, uh, but you can rephrase it to ask what should it look like taking into account what uh, the literature looks like now? How would we make an updated version of it? Uh, especially taking into account that we you know, we've done a little bit of work, but uh, we've basically been outpaced by all the other people. <laughs> and so they're ahead of us in, in many places and, and we would need to catch up. Um, and I, I see quite a few places, and this, this is just from my um, point of view, from my position. Um, multiple goals were very important for SART and March. There's work on that now, a fair amount of work, uh, but this could be made much more precise by thinking about a, a couple of more issues that people haven't given full attention yet, partial attention, but not full. Goals aren't held by anonymous organizations or, or it's like they're held by the organization as a whole. They are typically held by units or by roles or by people holding that role. So goals are very specific and the more specific you get, which organizational unit has the goal, uh, which role is overseeing the goal, which specific person inhabits the role, um, the deeper you get into those types of considerations, maybe we will learn more. There's plenty of room for more additional work on that. Goals also are phrased in different ways. Uh, there is the old argument about how numbers are magic. 
as soon as something can be quantified, it becomes more important than it maybe it deserves to be. Well, there is something similar about formalization. As soon as there is a review process around the goal, then it also becomes more important, maybe deliberately so, but often more so than intended. And we start looking at this. And goals also have different consequences uh, for the organizational units that, um, that have the goals or for the people occupy the role that oversees that organizational unit. There's a lot of detail here that can be added. I think we, we have a lot of work uh, still left to do on, on, on goals. Another one is there is this old thing about problemistic search and, and there's a lot of research done on that too. Uh, that has even created one more annals paper uh, by Hart Posen and, and co-authors. Um, and so we, we know there's progress there, but again, we are able to go back to some of the considerations in the behavior theory of firm and maybe try to get into more detail there too. Search is motivated which means that there is some attempt to match solutions to a problem. Now, uh, there are two kinds of matches here, and, and here I want to reach out to a different literature for one moment, because uh, the motivated search, there's an organizational motivation, but there's also personal individual motivation for, the, for whoever is overseeing the search process. Those two may be different. And... We, I know the organizational scholars aren't always happy about agency theory because it's overly rational, but there's a central idea there that what I as a manager want may be a little different from what the organization wants to solve problems. So maybe the match of a problem and a solution is by organizational considerations, but some portion of personal considerations may be in it as well. And we should remember that. Search is simple-minded. And it's been stated very clearly that there's a sequence of solutions where solutions initially are proximate and incremental. But then once that fails, they may be less incremental, they may be less proximate, and it, there's a snowballing process by which additional solutions become more and more different from what was done before. We believe this to be true, but how often do we test it? It seems like a wonderful research opportunity to look into those sequences. Search is also biased. And of course, decision makers have all sorts of experiences that you know, equip them with these glasses that they see the world through. So you see certain things very sharply and then other things you're unable to see particularly well. And, and we, we've only just started looking at those types of decision maker experience and the effects it has on the decisions. Um, a particularly interesting uh, branch there is that organizations have internal discourse. There's also environmental discourse uh, about things that are uh, viewed as problems. I mean, institutional theory is a lot about those types of, of discourses. Well, we can measure them now, and maybe we should try looking at uh, how they affect decision-making. Um, I've, I've already tried to do a little bit of that work um, myself in the paper with Viva Gaba on, um, on the airline safety, where one approach was to just measure which aircraft are unsafe, and so maybe the airline should stop using them. But the other one was to look at sentiment analysis. 
which aircraft is the press writing bad stuff about? Both of them predict behavior. And so there is discourse seems to be some sort of interesting bias that we should look into now that we have the tools for doing so. And also, of course, the decision maker is the central actor in, in the behavioral theater firm. And, and we've learned a lot about decision makers, although uh, with some bias towards it, those decision makers that happen to be CEOs. <laughs> we should probably learn about the other ones in the organization as well. But what do we need to know about decision makers? Again, they've had experience. They're going to bring lessons from that experience. Some of that is going to be experience that of the same organization, but some of them are going to be experiences from their prior workplace or even from training. Uh, I think most of the people in this session train people who become decision makers. How do we influence them? depending on what they learn from us. We should think about that and maybe we should study it as well. There are also specific positions in the organization. Organizations have structures, which means that there is a relationship, it's a network of roles that interact with each other. And there are many, many things that we could find out about that. And decision makers uh, have various degrees of involvement in and the activities that have higher or low performance, they are in an environment with greater or low ambiguity about whether things are doing okay, whether things need to be fixed. Decisions makers may or may not have power. And so maybe they are trying to solve problem in some particular way shaped by their experience and their motives. Maybe they try to do self-enhancement. And here I just have to make a little plug because we did write a book about that, the, the tension between self-enhancement and, um, and problem solving and the issues that come around, where is the decision maker in the organization and, and what are the ways in which they are influenced by the organizational structure and process. Okay, final question. How is the field evolved? Well, notice that I'm already talking not about research that has happened, more research that is seems like it's about to happen, right? Because I, I, I kind of look, I want to see forward and I like the inspiration part of, of it. Well, we obviously know that there are research streams inside the behavior theory firm that's increasing in volume and diversity of topics. Yes, there's performance feedback, there is attention, there's problemistic search, um, there is learning from the, uh, the behavior of others. There is adaptive search, uh, all sorts of things that we are doing quite actively. But we have friends outside the behavioral theater firm as well. And, and there may be opportunities for meeting each other and learning from each other. Um, I have my particular uh, sort of research streams that I'm willing to place bets on. Other people probably have different ones. Um, I'm really excited about the linguistic turn in organization theory because understanding language and being able to analyze it formally gives us great tools for finding out what are the decision maker biases right now. Because we, we often pretend that decision makers mostly look at numbers and things like that, but it's not true. They, they look at language, they listen to language. 
and, and this shapes their decisions uh, a lot. We just haven't analyzed it carefully enough and we're at the brink of being able to do so. Short reminder that part of behavioral theory to firm, the foundation of it was, as, as Giovanni said, you, you, you get from observing the organization very carefully. It starts with qualitative analysis. Well, now we can do that with different tools. The machine learning tool gives us approaches of discovering things that would be very hard for the unassisted human to do. And at some point we're going to start using that effectively. I don't know when, and I think it, I hope it's soon. And of course, this is just a small lament. Um, wouldn't it be nice if to an increasing degree, the behavior theory of the firm went back into the firm and, and studied what happens inside. I know the reason we're doing it so little now, we simply aren't given access to the data that we want, uh, but we should really knock on doors and try to, to open them and find out what is happening inside the firm. What are all those local search processes that was part of the inspiration for the behavior theory of the firm? So those are some of the, the ways in which the field has evolved. Although to be honest, I, I need to say, those are some of the directions where I think maybe uh, the field may evolve in ways that would help the behavioral theory firm. All right, thank you. Hope I'm not too much out of time. Thank you so much, Henrik. I really appreciate it. Lots of really good information. And whenever possible, I tried to capture them in the chat. So there were several papers that were mentioned. So look into the chat and I will compile them um, and post them for a general uh, audience uh, later on the YouTube channel. All right, so our next speaker is Dan. Okay, great. Uh, thanks so much. Let me get so I can see you folks a little bit. Um, okay, so, you know, sort of starting in ways connecting to Henrik's initial remarks that, um, you know, the sociology of knowledge, there's this work, what motivated the focal actors and then how we come to understand it. And then that highly reduced form understanding some 40, 50, 60 years later. Um, I think the focal actors had this kind of, you know, my Lego structure intended strategy, uh, a coherent intellectual structure, you know, very much. Um, there was, you know, the, the, we talk about the black box of the, the, or the firm that, that economists left. They're writing in 1963. Agency theory doesn't really get going for a decade or so more. So there really was economics as a theory of, of markets and firms of production functions. So it was a really enormous void. And they're going to, you know, made this ambitious effort at a, at a coherent structure. I think the realized strategies that were the realization was more this too. You know, there are these elements. Oh, problemistic search, feedback, goal conflict, and and different pieces of the elements of that stew kind of get picked up. Uh, but but the broader structure was a bit lost. So I think you know, part what I said part of our motivation, you know, is well, we may not create a Lego skyscraper, but maybe we could go from a stew to a compote, like, you know, where the elements are a little more visible, uh, where their interrelationship is a little more apparent. So kind of a more moderate goal. And so highlighting what, what are those foundational elements, properties of individuals, you know, this uh, bringing in over structure, you know, the, the, at the time we're right, in particular, the politics and conflict have been kind of 
you know, somewhat under underappreciated uh, come, coming out. Uh, you know, Willie will speak later. We're always kind of one of the right, key people. <laughs> Willie is a dual student, Jeff Pepper and Jim March, kind of always, you know, kind of helped bring politics before. Uh, and, and then these, you know, issues around attention. So there's, I think, part of our, our kind of ambitions of that sort. Uh, and, you know, actually, in my reread, uh, I was kind of been a little bit impressed with us in some ways, where I was going to say, I think we were pretty good also noting that uh, the theory firm, there was the firm, this is more of a thing called the market. Yes, there was a little discussion about oligarch uh, competition, but, uh, you know, we noted, well, let's embed the firm in networks. Um, you know, rules and routines just don't come from the organization. You know, as Willie and a lot of his work has pointed to, there's an institutional environment, and that's also where they come from. And so I think we, we actually, uh, <laughs> I felt ex post good about ourselves, like, oh, yeah, we did, did point to those connections. I'm not sure they've been so, so fully developed. But in terms of the, you know, where we are going forward, let me go to the most saturated part of the pond, as Giovanni <laughs> correctly noted. Uh, and saturated not only in the sense of the contemporary discourse, it's the most deeply rooted, okay? So stimulus response learning is a pretty old idea in psychology. Um, Felipe Zazar has a beautiful and recent annals paper where he kind of links some of the org theory work to AI and, you know, cybernetics, uh, you know, so whether it's, you know, the early AI, psychology, these are big ideas. We tend to take, take you know, Simon is the beginning point there in that some sense. Um, so firmly rooted and strongly developed and Emmerich kind of being a you know, key person and kind of taking that from abstraction to kind of a, a strongly formed empirical analyses and, and building out elements of that argumentation. But dangerous, I get deep waters, but I think what you know, I find striking kind of a little bit interesting is, oh my gosh, that's the most ancient, most deeply developed but if you think about some of our contemporary organizations, actually as a pragmatic issue of practice, one of the most alive. Uh, now, people who talk about these issues don't cite the firm heck of a lot or much of the org learning literature, but uh, be that as it may, you know, discussions, whether it's uh, AB trials or the more, you know, the RCT or more heuristic, you know, let's fail fast, try, experiment, or the more formalistic AI machine learning, um, you know, these are very vibrant elements and challenges of contemporary organizations animating a lot of work. And again, for me, as somebody coming out of this tradition, it's great to see that energy. It'd also be interesting to see some ways in which we can connect it uh, to these, these prior uh, intellectual traditions. Um, and, you know, AI, you know, is a wonderful technology, <laughs> okay? But uh, it's interesting to kind of deconstruct that a little bit. So, you know, whether, you know, it's a lot of the early work in AI has been under supervised learning, but that's a very specialized context, right? That is where the answer is no. So some radiologist who's an expert is understanding uh, these images and, and has understanding of what are indicative of cancer, or maybe we have a, a big set of data uh, based on, you know, uh, samples, uh, and then we can kind of train the algorithm. Uh, you know, unsupervised learning, I think, you know, per Henry's remark, that's sort of where you're beginning to see AI enter 
the management literature. You know, we're like, let's do the text analysis. Let's try to structure this rich uh, linguistic stream. Uh, you know, close to my the reinforcement learning, it can be pretty awesome, but you know, as long ago Jim and I noted, um, feedback can also be rather myopic. <laughs> myopic in a temporal sense of we tweaked something and sales went up or down. Uh, myopic in a spatial sense. Uh, this part of the organization thought they were getting positive or negative feedback, but what, what are the ripple effects? So both temporal and spatial, uh, problematic, right? And so it's exciting moment and maybe we, we you know, as part of this tradition, some more opportunities. Um, you know, I think as Willie noted a kind of recent panel we were on, you know, there's this sort of um, Pittsburgh gym, more influenced by his engineering <laughs> friend, uh, Simon and Cyrus, as, as Giovanni noted. And then there's the California gym, as it were. Uh, and the California gym, much more in tune to these issues around, well, Feedback is not terribly clear cut. <laughs> There's a lot of interpretation. Uh, and, and Jim open to lots of ways, whether it's the social critic, Susan Sontag, in a variety of ways, and, and, and kind of, you know, a topic, not just through the 70s, but I think his last book out of Cornell Press was kind of revisiting these things about the challenges of interpretation. Um, and, and in like, you know, Henrik, I've been kind of animated by some of these issues partly around the multiple goal problem. And, you know, even if individual goals have, we trivialize them as having some discrete qualities in composition, as Klaus and I kind of like, you know, the imagery of look a bit gray uh, from a distance. And then there are these issues of what's the salience weight and so on. Uh, and it is interpretation. It's not the A algorithm that's going to kind of create some complicated weighted schema over, over these um, uh, little, little tiles. Um, and in that sense, I think, you know, yes, we have problemistic search and so on. Um, despite a long-standing topic, I think we still have a tendency to sort of trivialize. Uh, and in some sense, there's sort of two poles where it's kind of simple to think about. There's these sort of ex-ante pole, you know, Giovanni and I talk about it sort of offline. I pick up this lottery, this ping pong ball, I decide it's good or bad, and I, I go off and take it. You know, the other limit, there's the ex post. We ran the trial, okay? We did the A-B test or something, and, and B turns out to be better than A. And so we let it experientially play out. Um, you know, that can work for small, narrow, tactical things. Things that involve real effort, energy, time, <laughs> um, it's online, but it's intermediate. And I think, you know, we still really struggle. So that was part of my critique with Ron Adner around real options. And I still struggle in my own mind how to move forward. And I think collectively we still struggle, you know. What are the attributes? Um, you know, and you see that also in the parallel literature in AI where they talk about model-based learning. And there's a sort of important strand starting from Samuels, John Holland, and some of the contemporary discourse, you know. In, in a simplistic, you know, econ or model, we have dynamic programming, but that acts as if you can kind of roll out the decision tree to some end state. Uh, whereas the model based learning, I, have a, I want to evaluate it in some intermediate step, but what I'm relying on is some complex mixture of feedback and some imperfect mental model about how to think about that, that feedback. And, and um, as Henrik notes, I mean, that's going to be situated 
different individuals, the collective in certain ways. Um, and so, you know, once we think about experimentation, evaluation, non-trivial context, you know, we're that middle ground, and, and I think we still have um, lots of work to do. At least I still feel I'm struggling. Uh, in a related vein, and, and we kind of, you know, both in our learning literature and the parallel discussion in AI, um, you know, often we act as learning in some sort of repeated event situation, but well, what granularity, <laughs> right? And I suppose there's the Heraclitian view, which in the limit life is a unique, series of unique events, which is a kind of, that sounds clearly true, uh, but as somebody interested in learning process, not terribly helpful. <laughs> You know, we can't aggregate. Uh, and how would I possibly make sense of the world? Uh, you know, as I said, uh, if I couldn't do some form of ag aggregation. And so, you know, Giovanni and I, again, we did some early work on, on um, analogical reasoning. That's one way of leveraging the past in a novel world. I think there's a more general question. You know, so that's, that's, that's one important instance of a kind of the role of categories. How do I bundle a sense of experience and, and other stimulus and action kind of uh, relationships? And so, you know, in some ways, hearkening back to some of Giovanni's remarks uh, today, you know, we're sort of, you know, Giovanni pushed us to think about the role of cognition in a kind of forward-looking way. And that's clearly important, sort of how where the expectations come from. Uh, I'm suggesting even in a backward-looking way, cognition is terribly important once we um, offer less cartoonist uh, views of what experience is about, right? So this kind of the interpretation, whether in a very rich, nuanced way per some of Jim's discussion, more stylized treatment uh, of, say, the model-based learning, uh, I think there's a really important kind of, a, as I suggest here, this overlapping uh, then uh, diagram, and again, you know, the sort of middle ground per Giovanni's comments of this sort of um, not quite the Simon engineer, uh, but intentionality, uh, and this sort of, you know, bounded intentionality, perhaps, uh, and it's sort of a you know, brazen act of self-promotion, uh, you know, sort of some, some, you know, imperfect efforts of my own to kind of begin uh, in, in that sort of direction. And again, this you know important element just to underline this idea of the, the artificial selection. I think that's really a really fundamental attribute of what organizations do. So there's various theories of the firm, and we have uh, you know the economists, transactions costs, property rights. For me, interested in feedback-based systems, what's central is the organization through its reward structure, through its accounting structure, through its way it gives social credit. It allocates. So we have the, the markets, the world, and it has a artificial selection environment. That's the boundary that I find really kind of important from an adaptive systems point of view and, and struggling with sort of how to push and articulate uh, a bit more. So thanks. Wonderful, thank you so much. Um, now we transition to Willie. Um, and I continue to capture uh, all the notes uh, that are just mentioned. And when you get a chance, Dan, uh, I cannot find the Troy Leventhal uh, forthcoming, so maybe you can help me with that. All right, whenever you're ready, Willie, go right ahead. Okay, thank you so much, uh, uh, Gwendolyn. Thanks to Luke and thanks to my other co-panelists. Uh, I'm actually writing right now a review at the same time of a book I call uh, Carnegie Goes to California 
which uh, Dan mentioned the uh, gym, um, California gym march, right? Uh, and it costs about kind of being a celebration and uh, also an investment. And, you know, that book is more, uh, much more better in the celebration than in the investment. And actually, one of the things that, that also reminds us about how contradictory uh, Jim March uh, was and is, right, uh, or, in his writings. And, uh, but also somebody humble who was always willing to revisit what he had done and didn't necessarily, just because I wrote it, that, uh, it's just something that I wrote, not something that necessarily uh, we want to believe in. I mentioned this because uh, I want to both start with a celebration uh, of, of our paper and, uh, you know, uh, 10 years ago, which I, I do think is, is uh, as uh, Henrik says, you know, stands out uh, as clearly uh, accomplishing what I'd intended to do, which also I remember it's an adult piece. It's about, you know, reviewing the literature uh, that, that was done and how I'd built. But uh, I think uh, we are, when, and in terms of what I had thought about, what I we wish that I would have done is actually, actually have read uh, again, the behavioral theory firm before I actually uh, wrote that, wrote, wrote my pieces. If you read the, the 2012 piece, it's very kind of, uh, it was very much this division of labor. And you could probably guess uh, who, uh, who wrote uh, 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 which parts. And it actually kind of reflects, you know, one of the critiques of uh, that, that, uh, that paper makes that, uh, uh, that there's not a lot of uh, integrative efforts with respect to the uh, behavioral uh, theory of the firm, and uh, in terms of the literature that, that has that has come afterwards, and I think this was reflected in the in the panel today, where we're all talk, we're talking about different aspects of it, and I think you know going back to looking at what what the behavioral theory of the firm actually <clears throat> said, is that it's really kind of the book is really multiple different books, right? Uh, there is this kind of algorithm model of decision making process, which is you know chapter seven is a very tight. Uh, argument. Uh, chapter H is this kind of more loose-based kind of theory, uh, uh, behavioral theory of the firm in a more broader sense uh, that talks about uh, uh, kind of a, a kind of a more organizational perspective on the firm and it's the, and the division of the different subunits, etc. And there's a lot of different chapters that uh, are also somewhat uh, decoupled with with each other. For instance, there's a there's a, a, a chapter on, on expectations. Which is actually more forward-looking than I remembered it to be, right? Uh, so one of the critiques that we make in the uh, 2012 uh, uh, article uh, is that research has not been very backward-looking. And there's this brilliant article by Giovanni and, and uh, Daniel that talks about the, the backward-looking versus forward-looking expectations. But here, you know, there is actually very uh, forward-looking aspects of it. And part of this is that you know the behavior of the other firm, the way that I think about it is that first of all, it's foundational to organizational theory as we know it. It particularly is foundational to kind of think about organizations as open adaptive systems and the adaptation as aspect of organization which we all are, are, uh, are part of uh, is central. And uh, there's also foundation in terms of leading to all these different perspectives, resource dependence theory, uh, the uh, actually contingency theory itself, you know, learning theory as we know it of which people like, uh, Henrik and uh, Dam are central part of it. It's certainly, I would say, one part of the trajectory uh, that is both built on on the behavioral theory of the firm, but in a sense takes it taking somewhat distinct uh, uh, direction. So you know, but that integration uh, that is somewhat in the in chapter eight uh, really hasn't happened, and that's probably more reflective of the field. Uh, 
as a whole, uh, the field of organization be, uh, uh, behavior and uh, macro organization behavior and strategy. But, but you know, if I, if I wanna, if I wanna crit criticize uh, uh, behavioral theory of the firm, part of it is this book is quite dated, I would say. And I say it's dated because it, it really does reflect the firm as it existed in the 50s and the 60s, right? Uh, it's under kind of you know managerial uh, capitalism model, and it's, it's, you, as you know, most of you perhaps probably know, you know I work on institutional logics, and the firm in in, uh, in uh, nineteen uh, 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 in the late twentieth century, early earlier twenty first, is very different from the nature of the firm that was uh, happening there, which you know we moved to a more shareholder uh, capitalism model, the shareholders. Uh, dominate the political coalition in ways that are not were not reflected in in uh, in 1963. At the same at the same time, interestingly enough, that datedness might be some uh, prescient of some of the ha uh, ha things that are happening right now uh, in terms of the movement away from this you know state uh, shareholder model of capitalism to more kind of a stakeholder model. Which if we take that seriously. Uh, I think that the notion of the firm as a political coalition of different stakeholders, where there is quasi-revolution of conflict, is probably the way to better understand some of the uh, perhaps changes that might be happening in the nature of the firm in, in, the, in the 2020s, uh, as you know, there's more, there's, there's a notion uh, uh, moving beyond kind of a shareholder model uh, of the firm. So you know, uh, we're, perhaps the the, uh, the book is more relevant now than it was maybe twenty years ago, uh, or even ten years ago when we when we were writing uh, uh, that article. At least the coalitional parts of the uh, of of the of the article of the book. And you know, I, I do want to talk. I think this is really important and something that uh, looking at the quasi resolution of conflict. And uh, the firm as a as a as a coalition is 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 important. Now, one of the things that the behavioral theory of the firm does is talks about the uh, the uh, you know the uh, performance feedback aspects. Uh, but there's another aspect that was actually somewhat uh, missing from the 2012 article, uh, uh, which is the uh, theory of organizational slack and what happens when there is actually a uh, uh, Excess of performance. Uh, uh, the literature in Slack actually has moved in a, in a very different direction than the um, uh, than the literature on uh, on performance feedback. And perhaps this is something that uh, you know I would say needs uh, more uh, more integration. It particularly would need to do that if we take a, this kind of coalitional uh, view of the uh, of the firm uh, more seriously. Now, in terms of, of this of this notion of, of how, how firms are, are shifting with respect in different logics, you know, work has been done. Actually, you know, Henrik uh, uh, has an article that links uh, logics to uh, uh, acquisitions, uh, which I think is very much along along these uh, these dimensions. Uh, and uh, so, I would certainly encourage uh, people to think about how uh, the our understanding of the firm and, and, and the insights from the behavioral theory of the firm uh, might be more specific to the institutional context and the historical context that uh, we are living, which I believe right now are changing in, uh, in systematic ways. Um, so now the, the, uh, the uh, you know, reading chapter eight, uh, you know, the, the, the book has, a, 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 on the other hand, has a tendency to be very, 
kind of uh, try to be very universalistic. Very different from uh, from uh, some of the aspects that we hear you hear when uh, Jim March, if not Carnegie, went to California. Actually, the impression I get, by the way, is that Jim March is trying to escape from Carnegie uh, and become his own person, uh, uh, much more playful, uh, less systematic than either uh, the 63 book or the uh, 58 uh, books was. Now, that being said, I would there are other aspects of uh, the behavioral fee of the firm that I think could use even more uh, development. Uh, uh, one, which actually Jim March did take, which is the notion of decision rules. And, you know, he uh, did some work uh, with uh, Martin Schulz and Che Guan Shao on decision rules. And the notion of decision rules uh, is something that I think uh, uh, could be developed even more. Now, he talked about uh, in that uh, in the book that he did on decision rules in terms of formal rules, but we also can think about informal rules. And uh, again, this is something that I would encourage more uh, research on doing. One of the things is that rules are often equated with standard operating procedures. But again, my reading of, of uh, the behavioral theory of the firm, that's not quite the same thing. So distinguishing the notion of rules and distinguishing the notion of, of standard operating procedures, uh, I think uh, might be, might be uh, useful. There's a, there, this, which relates to sort of an, a notion that there's a lot of insights in the 63 book that have yet to be uh, exploited. Uh, the, the research, if we look at the directions that it has taken, I think they've all been very fruitful, but I would encourage you to actually read the book, right? Uh, in addition to reading our, our, uh, our, our 2012 uh, uh, paper, because 2012 paper does reflect, I think accurately, what, where the uh, field had gone, and perhaps even where the failed is, is, is going with respect to applications of behavioral theory of the firm. But there's a lot more that I think uh, can and, uh, and should be done, including you know, the, the notion of attention that I used in my own work on attention is actually somewhat different from, from the behavioral theory of the firm where they talk about attention rules. Now, some of those notion of attention rules could also be used. And it's interesting that some of the political scientists have actually taken that literature, that those ideas uh, in, a, in a more, in a way that actually is closer to the, to the behavioral theory of the firm than I think uh, we did. So I guess in, in, in closing, I think uh, there, the, there's a vast opportunity uh, that still remains in the original behavioral theory of the firm, going beyond the, the trajectories that uh, we have already done, uh, both uh, the four of us and other people who have followed uh, the different perspectives that uh, have been happening. Thank you. Wonderful, thank you, Billy. Uh, so we have uh, concluded four presentations and now Luke will take over uh, to do a, a set of uh, moderating questions. And then we'll open up uh, for audience interaction. So if you would like to ask a question, uh, please uh, post your questions via the chat um, and uh, we will pull them uh, from the, uh, the list and try to be as uh, open-minded and as uh, demo uh, democratic uh, in this process. Uh, Luke, go right ahead. Okay, so as Gwen said, so from now on, we open the floor to the question. So before we take questions from the audiences, so let me start with the question that uh, Gwen and I sent to the other panelists. 
which is prepared for the purpose of the education. So there are many junior faculty and doctoral students in the audience. So could you uh, share your opinion about future research agendas that you think is important to extend and advance the theory in the context of this modern economy, 21st century, and to promote discussions among you, the, among the panelists, I would like to also ask you whether you have any reactions or reflections to the other panelists' presentations. Thank you. Well, I'll start with the with the first question, and I think I already answered part of it, right? Uh, which is respect to the mission of the transition. Now we have purpose seems to be kind of the uh, thing that people are talking about these days. The importance of corporate purpose that was actually not reflected so much in the uh, in the behavioral theory of the firm, but it was it was reflected in uh, the uh, firm as, as a political coalition that talked about the possibility of them being something more integrative. Uh, that, that put the coalition together. Uh, I think we should go back and uh, examine these questions uh, uh, very thoroughly uh, uh, to the extent uh, there, there, there will be, or at least might be, or at least being debated uh, and by, you know, say the business roundtable and, and Larry Fink and others, you know, to one extent, are we moving away from this, uh, you know, shareholder value perspective to this more kind of stakeholder uh, uh, perspective, which is consistent with the behavioral theory of the firm. Um, I mean, uh, the other part of the answer is that the environment is changing uh, so quickly uh, with respect to the digital transformation that, uh, you know, uh, we have to kind of integrate that in a, in, a, in, a, in a better way than I think was not quite reflected in, in the behavior of the other firm. Again, because the, the rapid, the frequency and, and, uh, and uh, vari variability of change is very different uh, now than it was back in the 50s or 60s. Yeah, Willie, you 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 kind of anticipated me on corporate purpose. That was my point. You know, I think you're right on the money on that. And you know, and you and I have been talking about it at some point, in fact. So to me, that that's like you know uh, that that's a big direction, an important direction. Uh, but I want to pick up on something you said that I completely agree with. You know, the, the behavioral theory of the firm actually is dated at some level. You know, and it's dated. Uh, Partly because of you know the, the amount of social science, relevant social science that has happened, as I said at the beginning, in the past 50 years. Uh, partly because of the work that we did since the behavioral theory of the firm, but you know maybe more importantly because of the of the of the changed uh, reality. I mean, the modern representative firm that Sire and March wanted to capture now is different, and the institutional environment is also very different, and so. You know, maybe what I said provocatively at the very beginning, you know, we should get together and rewrite the behavioral theory of the firm. Well, you know, why not? That could be the, the agenda. Um, you know, I'm saying that seriously. So, um, yeah. And, and, and also, you know, maybe in reflecting, uh, you know, on the, you know, juxtaposition between Simon and March, you know, I realized that a lot of what we've been writing uh, in the past, you know, um, you know, few decades um, is not, you know, practical. It's not, you know, uh, addressing. It's not, you know, the, the kind of the practical implications of of our theories have not been spelled out. And I think that there is a there are lots of low hanging fruit there that you know we as a community could um, could leverage. So anyway, a couple of thoughts. 
I want to talk about um, uh, future directions of research. Um, I would just repeat what Willie said, read the book, right? I mean, you can, there are all these chapters that have been underused. Um, and I, we know which ones they are, right? Um, and for good reasons, actually, because the, the chapters that we don't see much research springing out of uh, tend to be the ones where um, there is a problem is being presented but not really a clear solution to the problem, or there are multiple solutions to the problem, um, and, and it, there, there isn't a resolution on in which one to, to do, because those there, there are some of the chapters that are relatively unfinished, uh, but, but that's sort of, that's the perfect kind of target if you want to do future research, because it means that, all right, we, we know this is important, we have some important suggestions in the chapter. I mean, the, the coalition uh, work is, is a good example of that, but we know that we have to add stuff in order to, uh, to put it into shape that we can, it's really sympathetic to testing. And, and those, uh, there are all sorts of opportunities like that in, in the, this is, um, yeah, that's, that's where I would go. Let me just chime in briefly. Um, first, just to uh, you know, build on what Willie and Giovanni were saying. So, goal conflict is inside of March, but it, the, the sensibility is more, you know, marketing can find product design annoying. Okay, which is a fundamentally different issue than. Um, so, there's this invasion in Ukraine. How does Exxon Oil think about this, and and what they respond to? So, this sort of I think you know what Willie and Giovanni both pointed to. I mean, there's sort of this you know, inside the confounds of normal business operation kind of contestation because we have a division of labor and yet we have task independence. <laughs> okay? And that's, I think, you know, kind of where it comes out of a basic Simon argument. Um, but that is different than a kind of more fundamental, as uh, is Willie's point to, kind of uh, stakeholder. And as I think about this, and also looking at Willie here, you know, I think you know Jim noted March, you know, notes between the logical consequence and logical appropriateness. Um, when we think about goal conflict, we are also typically doing it under the mindset of a logical consequence. I think when you're faced with really, you know, you know, one can think about how does McDonald's or somebody respond to the Ukraine invasion uh, from a logical consequence. But I think in some of those might also evoke more a logic of appropriateness. And then, and then that's a different, and we can also contest a, a, around that and have different starting points. But I think there may be an interesting, um, you know, we have a two by two, as it were, logic of appropriateness, uh, logic of cognitiveness, and kind of issues around uh, goal conflict. And I don't uh, refer to Willie, a better set, but I think there's some interesting issues there. It's, you know, the other I would just underline in some sense, you know, what I was pointing to is all this energy around, you know, experimentation and so on, mean stars and so on. It's a really exciting phenomena and, and Amazon can do their A-B trials. I think much of it is atheoretic <laughs> and, and not that the answers of the behavioral theory of the firm, but I think there's certainly the org learning, behavioral theory of the firm, Carney tradition, um, might be usefully, uh, you know, speak to to the less tactical, less trivial versions of the experimenting organizations. And so I think there's ways, yes, 
it's dated, but the sensibility around experimentation is in some sense very au courant. All right. Can I, um, can I say something? Okay, yeah. yes, of course. Given that I said uh, it's dated, I would say the integration, it's dated, right? The, the way it tries to put everything together is dated, right? Actually, I think that for different pieces are actually not dated at all, right? Uh, and perhaps you just need to put them together in a different way uh, and add some more, right? Uh, so just to sort of clarify uh, what I meant by uh, uh, saying it was dated. Great, thank you for the clarification. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I <laughs> comment on that because there, there are some difficulties in creating that type of integration the way the research works now because we, you know, the, Part of the beauty of books from those days is that they could integrate, but what are we doing now? We, we, we work on the various pieces and we refine the pieces. Um, yeah, so maybe we should do what Giovanni said, should come together and do one big massive integration different from what we're doing in the articles. Well, Yay, a new book. <laughs> Great. Um, so I am going to nudge uh, the panelists to take uh, questions. I have two uh, that are being listed in the chat, and I think I'll probably just have enough time for those two. Uh, the first question is raised by Ji Sao. Uh, would you like to ask that question yourself? You can turn on your video so we can see you. Hello. Hi. Hi. Uh, I, I do have a quick question uh, for, for Willie. You mentioned about the decision rules. Uh, I do think about that question uh, uh, quite a bit. So um, are, you, are you suggesting like, for instance, if a firm has a performance, a performance shortfall, uh, uh, you know, lower performance than the aspiration, then what are they gonna do? The literature talks about a lot of responses on a D, you know, uh, budget cutting, et cetera. So are you suggesting like, uh, maybe we should have, uh, you know, thinking about the rules of decision rules, like uh, uh, for different firms, they have some different uh, rules to think about which response they might take I'm, I'm going to go back to Henrik's point about we need we need to understand we need to have data what's happening within the organization right yeah. uh, uh, the only way we can really uh, get into that is doing that so I'm I, I'm actually about to to start a study which is uh, amazing uh, because uh, uh, about uh, this uh, University of Illinois. Uh, a program of uh, developing uh, the spit test, right? Uh, and how they were to implement it. And, you know, the, uh, the, the humanity director of the program uh, is actually a co-op, it's gonna be working with me on the program. We have all this data about all these meetings, everything, all the rules that they made, et cetera. So, I mean, this is like uh, uh, Nirvana and uh, for me, and it's a, it's a way of combining both, the way that I'm thinking about it right now is combining my work on attention with the behavioral theory of the firm, right? Uh, and uh, I think uh, the, the part of this is that I think, I mean, I've done quantitative work applying this and Henrik is probably the master on applying, doing empirical work, but to really take the whole theory uh, completely, you really would have to really get into much more detailed analysis uh, uh, that is more uh, uh, qualitative. Now, the work that March did with uh, Shi Wang and, and, and Martin Schulz is because Stanford had all these written rules, right? Uh, so they actually coded 
all the written rules. And you know, being now at the University of Illinois, which has these all these written rules, I think you know uh, that can be done. Uh, I think it's much less likely to happen uh, within a for-profit firm. Okay, so you are suggesting like uh, um, maybe it's a better way to understand the behavior from we should uh, uh, go deeper to the reality to identify those rules that firms have utilized to decide their you know, decision making on the different uh, uh, scenarios. If you take the book seriously versus I think all the research that is simpler uh, and more uh, encapsulated, stylized, it's about decision-making processes, really, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, and the rules that guide decision-making processes. I mean, that's how I interpret uh, the behavioral theory. For now, it doesn't mean, as Henry would, uh, would would I think would say, well, you know, it's hard to do anything uh, like that in a in a in a research paper, right? Uh, so then we tend to kind of aggregate and and simplify and do a lot more stylized models or Dan will do a simulation, right? Uh, that's another way to capturing it, right? Uh, so I'm not suggesting necessarily that uh, we do what I'm, you know, what I just said I might, I'm going to be do precisely because it's really hard to capture decision rules, right? Uh, um, um, unless we have some access to what they are. Okay, good, thank you. Okay, so we have uh, time just uh, for our final question. This question was raised by Daniel, Daniel Kim. Daniel's mic is not working, so I'm going to read it as the way exactly how he wrote. So perhaps this is March, but the behavioral theory of the firm focuses a lot on how managers are imperfect, but in an optimistic sense. Uh, there is little jealousy, sabotaging, political vendetta, access greed, da 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 da. Is there a way to incorporate these uh, evil, bad tendencies uh, into what we think about behavior? Oh, that's, a, that's a tough one. I, I'll, I'll just I'll buy my colleagues' time by entering a little bit. Um, but I think, um, you know, the extent that, that Simon's early work is sort of a starting point, uh, you know, it's a emotionally barren <laughs> conception of human action, right? So, you know, uh, <clears throat> there's lots, uh, you know, that's a starting point in which some of the, you know, the bound rationality literature moves. And so I think per Daniel's observation, you know, it, it is, um, you know, a, a bit, it's a boundedly rational version of Spock, to give a different cultural reference, okay? Spock lacked emotion, but, but was nearly unbounded in, in the cognitive side. Uh, and so clearly, as you know, um, yeah, you know, and, and I remember Michael Cullen early on, you know, educating you, emotion actually, you know, we're more reactive to that, you know, pre-cognitive pre and obviously frames what happens. And so uh, clearly, we, we, our central building block in some ways on this tradition perhaps puts us on a path dependence journey of intellectual development that sort of sets, sets up that, uh, that, that critique. And, and so, uh, you know, Henrik was noting a sort of motivated search. <laughs> you know, so, you know, the individual's there as a sort of feeble-minded Spock. <laughs> uh, and, and maybe that, you know, isn't the best building block. And I think, 
you know, Giovanni reference. Yeah. So the behavior will be third in 63, but really when we think about, you know, Simon, that's even earlier. So is our canonical representation of the actor, you know, what you'd want to do in 2022? <laughs> and maybe there's kind of a, a root element of, now it needs to be simple. And actually, you know, Willie G. Vine and I had kind of in our, our first epic, a lot of discussions and uh, Willie kind of appropriately pushing kind of a richer conception, more situated. Uh, but, you know, let's say more, a better reduced form version <laughs> of the actor. And, oh, and by I the way, Dan, wasn't, wasn't docility like a fundamental assumption? In you science? know, Simon did, uh, you know, later on talks about docility, right? And so if we're going to adopt premises, actors need to. But I, I think the broader but point it, is, yeah, we, we have a kind of, it's going to be simple and never make psychologists or, or richer conceptions truly happy. But but in some ways, this tradition uh, started out stripping uh, perhaps really, really important elements that, that, motivate behavior we're not just you know doing yes we're creatures of habits but we're also creatures of emotion and, so and what you're saying then is fundamentally forces. we i'm sorry then so keep, Go going, keep going no what you're saying is fundamentally we need to rethink the the you know the fundamental micro foundation here and you know rethink the actor and inject a richer yeah i like that a lot that would be good that would be i like it a lot I don't know how to do it. But... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, you know, one of my favorite books is Moral Maces by uh, uh, Jackal. And I it could certainly see integrating Moral Maces into uh, the behavioral theory of the firm, right? Uh, because that's a, it's a game about uh, playing the numbers, right? Uh, and how these managers basically, you know, they, they want to do short term profits, right? Uh, and uh, to get promoted, right? Uh, and then they have all, all the docile people are the uh, the ones who work for the managers and and do whatever the manager tells them, no matter no matter how uh, uh, immoral it might be, right? Uh, I think that book is also you know a bit dated, but uh, uh, not completely. So you know, I, I, um, this is another thing that, that I don't think we we have. I mean, I implicitly talked about it when we we're talking about bringing logics into the study of. Uh, of the behavioral theory of the firm, but uh, I think you can take uh, other perspectives that might be more complementary than, than you might think. And that is a, certainly uh, one that comes to mind to me. I like that a lot. So the interesting thing here with these uh, misbehaviors or other motives that you, you may be talking about, is there a way of bringing them into the theory, yes, of course, but I'm not sure I, I know the way, uh, but some of this has been anticipated. I mean, what is the whole purpose of having organiz organizations having decision rules and having a theory with decision rules in it? Well, the idea of a rule is that you can't quite trust the individual decision maker to act the way the organization would like to without the rule. But then, of course, given that you have a decision rule, is the, the, the decision maker going to be creative enough to think of a reason why the decision rule doesn't apply and instead some favored solution with some individual uh, you know, benefits for the decision maker should be picked instead. And, and so you have all these layers 
all right, or, or you know, there, there, there is an organizational system with, with, with rules in it and there are reasons for the rules, but exactly because there are reasons for the rules, there are reasons that you might want to deviate from the rules. And that's exactly where this funny kind of motivated search comes in. I mean, I can't on the fly make a theory of it, but I can certainly see that the elements are already there. They're swimming in the theory. You just need to put them nicely together. Yes, that means we are waiting for your next book together. Uh, I can, uh, responding to Henrik, that depends on how functional the rules are, right? Uh, because I think, I mean, uh, the moral basis argument, they're only functional in the short term, right? Uh, and then people get away with it. So actually the misbehavior in that book is precisely because of the rules, right? Uh, that favor uh, short-term uh, uh, profit maximization and, and, uh, and having the data in a particular point of way. So, uh, um, and which by the way, another aspect of, uh, of, of the details of the book is like, well, you know, collecting the information is part of the story, right? Then you have power just by the one who collects the information that's required to make decisions. All right. Um, so we are about uh, to approach our end time. Um, Luke, do you have uh, other things you would like to add? Um, uh, I don't think so. We all good, yeah, to wrap up the session. So Gwen, you finalize okay. All right, terrific. Uh, it is a, a really great experience working with Luke. I can see the generations of minds, you know, pushing and advancing uh, to see this frontier uh, serving our field very well. Uh, so what I will do is to compile uh, the recommended uh, reading list um, and double check with the panelists, uh, then have it all available on our STR YouTube channel. So we will have this recorded session and a full reading list. Uh, I encourage you, uh, the way I typically do it is I look to these papers for my PhD seminar reading assignments. So uh, very happy to have all your input and I look forward to this idea of having the next book together. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Gwen. And thank you very much, Luke, for organizing this in addition to thanking the, the panelists. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye everyone. I'll stop the recording.